welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. But we did have another Sunday discussion, obviously, last Sunday. Oh, what happened? Um, so... I feel like this thing kind of zigs and zags. Is that... Yeah. So we're... <laughs> yeah, we're kind of at another another zag. Well, th- and this is the thing, like, what I'm finding, too, is that they're within the, uh, the sphere of, let's say, um, detractors. So there are some definite detractors from what I'm proposing on a Sunday morning. Maybe there are sort of four different people who are who are detractors. And some just drop off, don't show nothing. They're gone. And then others, um, I, I wonder if they're doing alternate things with their, their kind of Sunday morning time. Um, and then, you know... Yet others um, continue to to attend, and yet continue to kind of throw out these sort of contradictions and these kind of almost like this alternate discourse at the end. And so, one of the things I'm learning about the group facilitation is is okay. Some people will have certain habits that, and although I find those habits and and I'm hearing from others that they also seem to find these habits detract from the effectiveness and the value of the the time you know it's like it's it's as though their efforts seem to be to kind of tell the real story after i've told my perspective that they're going to tell the real story or the true story or kind of get people back on online by by offering this little discourse at the end but i've realized on the one hand i have to just be aware that that's going to happen and plan for it and um, I think, I mean, did we talk about this last time that, that, that I <clears throat> initially just saw this church group as a group, a culture of trust relative to Christianity and Christian things, where Labrie, let's say, you're often dealing with a good number of people who might be categorized as um, uh, presenting and demonstrating a culture of suspicion relative to Christianity and Christian things. And I thought that that had kind of summed it up, but what I didn't realize, and maybe correct me if like we if we talked about this last podcast, I don't recall that we did, um, but if we did, let me know. But I think there's also there's a degree of what I would call um, naivete and a degree of um, credulity um, in these folks, and, and you know, what do you mean by credulity? Credulity is the willingness to believe something. It's almost being over ready to believe stuff. Well, someone raised something like this in the Facebook group. They were talking about, I think it was in response to 134 in the Facebook group. And they were mm. commenting, I hope I get the details right here. I think it was something to the effect of their frustration of a Bible study at church where people were, quote, claiming promises from the Bible, uh, basically just, you mm. know, there was a psalm that said something. And so that was quote, a promise from God. Yeah, I think it was even Proverbs, right? Taking wisdom literature and seeing it as promises as opposed to wisdom literature. 
Right. So I wonder if that kind of falls in. I wonder if this is, well, I don't wonder. I think it is. It's a widespread problem. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're probably right. But, but I hadn't recognized that. And so I wasn't, I kept thinking to myself, okay, there's this, there's this big resistance, this big, big, big resistance. And so this past week, what I did is instead of going through, so we ha- I created this questionnaire really to get people thinking about like, okay, well, what do I expect? How, we, how, how much time and effort would I be willing to put in if I felt pretty sure that I could learn something important about my Christianity or that would help my faith along? Um, what are my expectations about how much time that would take? Um, how, what are my expectations about what, what I deem to be a trustworthy source of information? How, how do I go about figuring that out? Anyways, I interrupted the process of offering some, some feedback not not really having a full-blown discussion of the answers, but offering some feedback as to why I'd ask certain questions and what I was getting at to address this kind of problem, let's say, of naivete, which is really, okay, we've got a, a, an overly simplistic way of approaching the Bible. And, and you know, I'm dealing with people who, these people have their own businesses, they, they're, they're adults, they, they have children they 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 live in a world of complexity like all other adults you know and they na- they manage that world pretty well but here in this particular setting when it comes to their faith there are expectations that things are going to be far more simple uh not complex and and much more easily managed and i don't think those expectations are realistic but there's also a component of being sort of radically i guess underinformed about certain things. So someone had raised the point that, um, for instance, we can't know what God's will is as Christians. And I thought, well, hold on, that, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you can't know what God's will is as a Christian, how can you possibly live as a Christian? How can you do what you're supposed to do? And in fact, why would you become a Christian in the first place if you don't know what's expected of you? You wouldn't buy a house or buy a car or buy a business. You sure wouldn't get married. If you didn't know who the other party was, what the terms were, and generally what was expected. There are always some surprises, but, but you know, you don't go in blind. We, none of us go into these things absolutely blind. So the idea that we don't know what God's will is would be really going in blind to something that for many people they see as the biggest commitment they make in their lives. And that doesn't make sense to me. So I took a little bit of time and just addressed that. And, and I think now I'm seeing that as something gets raised and there's an education point because, hold on, it's not supposed to be that complex. Well, no, actually, it is a little more complex. So let's address that. Let's educate on that point. And then we're coming back. So the other thing that I've realized is that it is extremely difficult for me on principle to push back hard against people. And I don't mean just, I, I mean people that, that, that I may be absolutely or as sure as I can be that I'm disagreeing with them or that I think that their perspective is flimsy, um, faulty, um, harmful. But I still... There's something in me that seeks to engage in dialogue and seeks to kind of push towards a more moderate position. And the last maybe 
three Sundays, maybe four, I've had to be very firm, like as firm as I am at my firmest times with my mediation clients, when somebody's about to get up out of the room and I've got to do a little reality check and say, okay, so I guess what's happening here is, are you in the process of taking a break or are you saying that you're now your best option is going to court so that I can understand, right? Where are we here? And I've seen through the last three or four Sundays that by being firm, this has helped and it seems to be helping everybody, but I still on principle really don't, I, I don't feel good coming away from those interactions because I just at some level really want to believe that it doesn't have to be like that. You know, even though it seems to be effective, even though I'm not, you know, if I'm firm with somebody, that person's still coming back. But um, So what's effective about it? Well, I guess it's effective in the sense that I'm getting positive feedback from other folks. Like, yeah, okay, this is going better. There are less disruptions. Or when there is a disruption, um, you know, you're right there. Um, you're kind of managing this process as opposed to us feeling like, oh my God, the process is going off the rails again because somebody here is having a really hard time with what Greg's saying. And instead of asking questions or making a comment, they're, they're, they're derailing the discussion. They're actually taking over. They're almost, as it were, assuming a leadership position in the discussion and speaking as a leader, um, you know, to the point that at one, at one, in one instance, I simply said, listen, as long as I am continuing to do this, in other words, as long as I'm continuing to facilitate this group, I will have to, to do this this way. Unless you would like to take over and facilitate this group. Hmm. You know, and just being, being really direct. So, so it's interesting to me that people have found that to be quite helpful, which maybe just speaks to how potentially chaotic it was before. Um, and I guess I'm learning something about myself. You know, I really, I would like to, I guess, you know, we're all like this, right? I would like to be able to foresee the, the difficulties before they arrive, have planned for them in advance, and be able to be, um, to be the best self I want to be and to use the techniques I value most in responding to those um, objections and issues. And of course you can't always do that, right? Cause this is a learning process. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of excited about what's happening to this point. I, I've actually had a, some new people join and I thought, Oh wow, this is interesting. And, um, yeah, I haven't yet brought out my point about, you know, self-deceit is a crucial element in Christian maturity. And in fact, we probably can't go there probably can't consider yourself mature in other words if if this idea is uh foreign to you you know how do you go about identifying it ah. <laughs> well that was the, hold on let me let me i think i've got this right here with me um in terms of the questionnaire um it was interesting to me that that i wrote down all these questions on the questionnaire and then i realized oh questions aren't in order like they're not in the order of importance they're not in the order of value. 
they're not in the order of purpose. I thought, oh, that's really strange. I wonder why I did that that way. And then I, and then I thought, oh, I must have made a mistake. And then I thought, no, you know, actually, this way it seems like it doesn't seem like I'm I'm leading the witness. It doesn't seem like I'm, you know, trying to do something unusual. So. I think one of the most important questions on my 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 ten question questionnaire was number seven. Think of a time when you were deceiving yourself, as opposed to being in error, being dishonest, or simply being ignorant. How did you become aware of your self deceit? Name three indicators of self deceit. And this is the only question of the ten that I'm really, really, really interested in discussing fully as a group and hearing what people had to say. And um, I don't know if I want to say this on the podcast because I'm giving it away. But, but well, I told you this, right? I told you um, that my daughter, when I first gave out the questionnaire and had people filling it in, people were asking questions about this number seven here. And my daughter was sitting right beside me and asked me a question. And I, I you know, the room was so quiet. And I whispered to her. And I said, but I'm not supposed to be telling you this because it's really quiet. And even though I'm whispering, everybody's going to hear. And everybody laughed. So I don't know if, if I, you know, um, if, if, if their responses are going to take into consideration what I said. But, I mean, I don't think you do become aware of self-deceit. I think the only way to address self-deceit is through the, the traces, you know. Like there's a trace... There's an exercise you can do with your eyes, uh, with the, your blind spot and your vision, and you uh, can identify the blind spot um, basically through the there's a there's a there's a trace or it's um, I'm trying to think of the best way to say it with the vision, but I think in terms of self deceit, you're, you're looking for traces. You know, you're looking for a confluence, a, a gathering, or a, a, a constellation of things that are questionable right so for instance if 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 i give somebody so recently there was a discussion on um on my blog uh where an individual my sense was the point is 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 pretty clear got a response back that was off off point quite a bit and i thought okay well Maybe maybe it's not clear to this person, or maybe they did what I do sometimes when somebody says, here, read this, and I, I look at it for about 30 seconds, and, and then they say, did you read that? And I'm like, uh, no, I skimmed it. So maybe he skimmed it, that person. So I wrote back something. I just really clarified the points. And again, same thing, right? Um, didn't seem to be able to connect with the point. And we've gone back and forth a couple of times, and in two or three kind of uh, exchanges, the point is still missed. So on the one hand, I would say that self-deceit is not is not about disagreeing with someone. It's about failing to actually apprehend, failing to actually recognize something that's in front of you. And typically we do this because it that that would be a uh if we recognize this thing, it might lead us to something else, right? And how often do you think it happens? Because in my experience of Christianity, like this is what what pops into my head is how easily something like this slips to an extreme. In the sense that it sounds like in your setting, 
that this idea hasn't really occurred to people yet, or you haven't really leaned on it, leaned into it. But yeah. it, but I think I've been in other settings where, and I, I think I mentioned this on a podcast, like nobody can trust themselves with anything because they're self-deceiving or sinful or like, in other words, they're not really capable of doing much because it, it's kind of taken to this other extreme. Yeah, that's an interesting thought, you know. I mean, in those settings, in those settings, would how would they deal with Bible reading? So, so imagine a setting like you're describing. What would be how how would people be told to read the Bible? You know, in other words, did they have to go to the pastor to get the right reading? Or were they told to, you know, be careful and, and uh, I don't know, maybe research their reading or look at a commentary? Or was that even raised? No. I mean, this goes to your point, And maybe it was in that blog post. Was this in your, that one, the magical Jesus one that you... When, <laughs> you love that uh, The title just kills me. Um, uh, I lost my thought. Well, you were talking about, you were saying that, that, that it's not really raised. Right, you were, you oh, were oh no, it was the idea point. that the Bible gets, it was, it was the idea that when you come to the Bible, that when people come to the Bible, they always have the correct interpretation. Ah. And maybe that was where the magic comes in. You know, it's, it's the magical Bible reading where, you know, people assume that because they are reading the Bible, that they are reading it correctly. You see, I wouldn't categorize what you're describing if that's how they're you know, pegging uh, Bible reading, if they're kind of pegging it as, oh, hey, this area, you're golden. Don't worry. You're good with that. Then I wouldn't think of that as being, uh, you know, this idea that we're completely deceitful. So in other words, there, I think there are settings where it's there's so much suspicion and such a lack of trust that it can be paralyzing. Right, but I don't think what you're describing is something that I would see actually as self uh, a, a, a kind of indication of or a, 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 an over preference for an excessive uh, focus on self deceit. That that doesn't sound right because if they're not looking at the fact that Christians read the Bible in instrumental ways, we use the Bible, and that's the whole thing about the magical Jesus. Jesus becomes this magic thing, this like you used to say the the vending machine, right? You go to Jesus, and Jesus will do this for you or do that for you, and maybe not in the sense of Jesus is going to give me a new car or a new job or a new house, but in the sense that um, I can claim Jesus as my reason, as my validation, as my support for doing this or not doing that for saying this or not saying that, for believing this or not believing that, right? But I think that where churches typically express uh, a lot of distrust, I don't think that that distrust or suspicion often plays out as a recognition of self-deceit so much as you're so sinful and you're incapable and it's down to God, which of course often means that when it comes to Bible reading, you're okay, right? That's a, that's, a, that's a green light zone for all you Christians because it is down to God and therefore God's going to help you and you're going to get the right answers. But woe betide if you uh, start doing a whole bunch of, um, I don't know, thinking on your own or planning on your own decision-making uh, about 
other areas, but but yes, reading the Bible, you're going to be okay, you know. And that no, that I think that's just a misplaced. Uh, it's like an excessive and an exaggerated sense of suspicion, and it's not placed in the right areas because suspicion has to land. It has to start at home, right? The whole idea, and I think we're we're where evangelical Christianity typically just misses the boat entirely is we want to be suspicious of, of ourselves in certain ways, right? In our sinful ways, but not in other ways. In other words, we have almost domesticated this idea of sin. It's pathetic. It is pathetic. If we have problems, then we have problems with our Bible reading. And it's not just that we are lazy or we aren't, we don't have biblical literacy. Like we, I don't know what was that episode eighty eight or eighty or whatever when we talked about that article from the Biola School. Oh, fifty six. Uh, <laughs> oh, fifty you know like, oh something. <laughs> Your machine. Well, that's not the point. The point is we actually read the Bible in ways that validate the very practices we claim to disavow, and we hide the truth of the matter from ourselves. That's self deceit. And it happens in churches all over the place. You know, and, and the amazing, the shocking thing is, people on the outside can see this. The Christians can't. Because often, these are normative practices, and even, even, they get to the point in some Christian communities where they are standards of faithfulness. If you don't believe certain things like God's will is always being done, or God's, God is a God of limitless power, then there's something wrong with your Christianity. Well, hello, you've just co-opted the God of the Bible, who clearly limits God's self for the purposes of achieving God's good goals. God limits God's self. You know, God's will is not always being done. Look at your own life. So the very fact that we are able not only to read the Bible in this way, but to claim that that reading is truthful, and then beyond that, to reinforce these these false readings and these self-deceptive kind of practices that work out in terms of our Baba reading as standards of faithfulness in a Christian community, like, wow, no wonder non-Christians look at so many evangelical churches and think, wow, they've got their heads totally up their butts. I don't want to be part of that. What a, what a wonderful tactic. What a, what a gloriously brilliant tactic for causing the church to be ineffective. Make everybody inside think that they are doing exactly what they should be doing. When everybody on the outside can look at them and say, that makes no sense at all. Uh, I don't want anything to do with that. So how does self-deception show up for you? Oh, lots of ways. Um, you know, it can show up in my marriage. It can show up with my kids. Uh... You know, it can often show up. One of the big ways it shows up is when I'm doing something and I'm busy and my, my, my spouse says, can you do this? And I think to myself, I'm busy. I mean, I'm doing this or this or this or this. And it, it wasn't really until she, she got a new job and she, um, you know, she, she is committed. She is there. She does not have the luxury that I do of, I don't have to work from two to three. I don't have to work anytime I don't have a meeting. And I don't have too many meetings throughout the week. My week is mostly free of meetings. Uh, and so I've got a lot of time I can move around. 
And so, you know, and just little things like, oh, I don't want to go to the bank. I'm at the office and I don't have the car. Well, hello, you live in a small town, smart guy. It's only 15 minutes walk. <laughs> Can't you spare 15 minutes both? That's a half an hour. Oh, half. Well, somebody's got to spend it. How come it's not you? <laughs> you know, and, and Wait, so, so how does, why is that self-deceit? Well, it's deceiving myself because I'm saying I'm too busy when in actual fact, I think I'm too important. <laughs> uh, okay. Right? I'm, I'm coming up with good answers, in quotes, good answers that aren't quite so good and aren't for quite the reasons that I say that I am. Okay. No, that's really helpful. I really appreciate your vulnerability. Yeah, because I was, I was kind of sitting here thinking- Oh, there's lots more. Oh, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there uh, well, you know, like all, all sorts of stuff. Like, do I, do I, do I, do I set something up with my kids as a date? And then do I break that date for reasons that are very subpar or sketchy or selfish? You know, and I've got to look at these things. And I, I, I think that the, when I say I've got to look at it, what I mean is I have tried to develop practices of examining the traces that self-deception leads, leaves. So in other words, when, when, when my spouse can point to two or three things and it's like a, it's like a, 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 a cluster on a, on a dot graph and there's a cluster right in there. I'm like, okay, I think I got to look at that cluster. And then if somebody else raises something and then if somebody else raises something, you know, and you might say, okay, well, that's just being um, open to criticism. Well, Yeah. That counts too, right? But the fact of the matter is that there are times when I have a very strong view of something and I need to just sort of step back or I have a very justified view, right? And a lot of times in my life, I try to ask the question when, it's, when I'm faced with something that's not going to work, it's typically something that's not going to work. And I ask, why not? Why won't that work? Why can't I do that? Why shouldn't we go there? And if I'm struggling to come up with reasons, you know, like sometimes it's not about self-deception. It's about um, not wanting to be vulnerable, right? I don't want to be vulnerable. Uh, I'm having, uh, this reminds me of something. So something occurred just the other day and I realized that I was having a strong reaction to it. And, and I th as I thought about it more, and I think I might have shared this with you in the, uh, earlier in the week, it reminded me of something to do with my father, and that was quite negative. And I thought, oh, well, okay. You could be overreacting to this because it's reminding you of your dad. And then it's, you know, that whole process of going through and examining and saying, so how is this really like your dad? How is it not like your dad? What are the implications and what are the consequences going to be if you avoid this thing or if you engage with this thing? And so I think the whole, the whole idea with, with uh, self-deception is we need to become aware of who we are, aware of our propensity to be self-serving, self-centered people. Um, yeah, can, you go, think, can you go back a little bit and, and maybe yeah. enumerate some of the ways you do that? Becoming self-aware? Yeah, like, I thought you were kind of implying that you had kind of developed some different ways of, like, checking yourself or 
or kind of early, you didn't say it this way, but like early, early warning signs that some self-deception might be going on here. Yeah. Well, I, I think, um, you know, getting some of the more effective ways are also some of the more costly and, and time consuming ways. Right. So, um, going to counseling, right. I, I, I can't think of a human being I've ever met who couldn't benefit from going to counseling. Um, I would avoid, and I'll just say this straight out. I would avoid biblical counseling. That's just, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to come up with descriptors that would match my, my sense of, um, hesitation about that method of counseling. I'm not talking biblical counseling. I simply don't believe that biblical counseling is an effective counseling method. I believe in the Bible. It does not make the Bible a psychology book, right? I'm not going to go for, yeah, open another can. Yeah, I was like, here. where did this come from? <laughs> well, I, I think we just need to be thoughtful and careful about this, right? The Bible is not designed as a way for you. It's It's got some, uh, to, to, understand human psychology. It gives some very great, fantastic insights into it, into psychology and, and into human makeup, particularly about self-deceit. But that does not mean that we as Christians should fail to take in as much information and to be accepting of as much good information as we can. And to rule out psychology and psychological uh, uh, findings and, and awarenesses uh, that would just be absolutely foolish. So, you know, counseling of various different types, you know, marital counseling, um, abuse counseling, if that's your background, grief counseling, uh, vocational counseling, career counseling. Um, the, other, the other thing would be to um, think about courses in anger management. Think about courses in communication. You know, and it doesn't all have to be intellectual, right? Counseling is not necessarily intellectual. And these courses that I'm talking about aren't necessarily intellectual. This is not graduate level. This is not even university level courses. Um, these things are helpful. Um, travel is helpful. You know, particularly if you can live in a foreign context, because then you get to see yourself through the eyes of an entire culture, right? I think probably the people who are most apt to be self-deceived are people who have not had the opportunity to, to, to learn any of these types of uh, emotional management courses like anger management, communication courses, take any counseling, do any traveling. Um, you know, I think these things, these are some of the main things you could do. One of the things that I would advise people to do as well is, um, just take inventories, take inventories of, for example, if you're a Christian and this is, this is not an easy thing to do. It's easy to say, why are you a Christian? What do you get out of being a Christian? What do you value on a day-to-day -day level, on a day-to-day -day basis? What's valuable to you about your Christianity, right? How do you know when you're wrong as a Christian? How do you know when you're reading the Bible incorrectly as a Christian? And I'm reading off of, or paraphrasing, some of the questions on this questionnaire that I gave my church group. Because the questionnaire itself, the function of the questionnaire overall, regardless of what their answers were, it got them thinking in a way that decentered them because it made 
they themselves had to be the object of their own analysis. Now, maybe they suck at at analyzing, right? Maybe they're just not trained or not practiced. That's okay. You don't have to start as a, you know, fully completed, perfect, uh, uh, and fully capable individual in this regard. I think just starting is important. What, you know, another way to do it is to, um, if you can, another way to kind of decenter, if you're Anglican, go to a Catholic service. Get the opinion of a priest. Doesn't mean you're going to go with it, right? But hear from religious perspectives, not that are you know, wildly different than your own. Like I might ask a Hindu perspective, right, or or or, or an Islamic perspective, um, but probably more for interest than for help, because it might it's it's probably going to be a little too far away from my perspective as a Christian, but. Um, you know, I attend a, a covenant church. That's the denomination. Um, I hadn't heard of it actually before I moved here. Um, I might seek, you know, a perspective from an Alliance minister or a Methodist minister, minister or a Baptist minister or whomever, right? That's another way because it's something outside of your perspective and can give you the, you know, it puts a, puts you at a distance from what you think and what you know and the, 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 the virtue of crossing that distance is developing skills really at assessing yourself. So I don't know how helpful that is. No, I like, yeah, we should probably wrap up. I just like how you were saying when you get start working on, cause I know that that was helpful for me because yeah, it's very easy for me to get working on some of my side projects or something and say, Oh, well, you know, probably be a good idea to do this other thing with my family or my son or something, but, Oh, well, no, I really need to work on this right now. And mm-hmm. I can see how that, yeah, I can see the, I see how the self-deception could very easily kind of sneak in there. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, I don't think self-deception too is a lot about, I don't think we often well, it depends on who you are, right? Self-deception could be undervaluing yourself. It could be overvaluing yourself. But I think a lot of times it's it's creating, again, it's kind of around these, these, these three different things of dealing with enemies, dealing with problems, dealing with fears. I want to be comforted in my fears. I want my problems, I want my life to be convenient for me. And I want to, I want to have my adversaries accused and brought to justice, but I don't want to have faced justice myself. Right. So these, 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 these kind of, these three things for me are the kind of big ones that I try to look at as well. You know, am I, am I afraid of something? And I try to be honest. Am I really just annoyed and wish something could be simpler and I don't want to deal with its complexity or with its cost? Or is, is someone persecuting me? And do I want to get them out of my life? You know, and then these are the areas where I think I am, and I think most people, I would say, are more likely to be self-deceptive in terms of our, how we manage those things in those areas.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Untangling Christianity podcast. A summary and resources for this episode are at our website, untanglingchristianity.com. If you'd like to join our private Facebook group or reach us by email, send your requests, questions, or even a simple hello to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is provided by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license.